Hello and welcome to the Data IQ podcast. I'm David Reed. In this edition, we are delving further into how you turn the principles of data ethics into practical behaviors and processes. I talked to Andrew Lin, head of data at UNICEF, about its award-winning approach to data governance. I have never been so busy in my working life. I also talked to Adria Gascon from the Alan Turing Institute about the mathematical models that could underpin privacy initiatives. Talking about privacy in general is like talking about freedom. And we hear about the possibility of a data ethics black box, as proposed in a recent all-party parliamentary group on data analytics report. So first, Andrew Lin is head of data at UNICEF, which has won multiple awards for its approach to data analytics, including the DMA Silver Award for Best GDPR Communication. Ahead of its annual Soccer Aid event on the 16th of June, I caught up with Andrew at UNICEF's 18th floor headquarters in Stratford, London. He started by explaining the mission of the NGO. My name's Andrew Lin, I'm head of data at UNICEF UK. Um, UNICEF works all over the world in more than 190 countries, including the UK. Um, we build a better world for every child. We keep children safe. We provide food, water and vaccines and protect them from war and help them go to school. UNICEF UK is a UK charity. We're entirely funded by supporters. Uh, we receive no money from the UN budget. My role, I'm, uh, I have a data team. I have a compliance function. Um, I have a uh, function that's looking after our systems. So we have a data warehouse. We make use of Salesforce. Um, and then in, this, in addition to that, I've got a classic database marketing team who are making selections in support of their marketing activity. So, Andrew, it is the end of May, one year on from enforcement of GDPR. What impact have we really seen, uh, especially in the charity sector? Well, I think it's raised the bar and it's um, set what you might call hygiene levels higher. Um, and, uh, you know, organisations are, are getting what you could say the basics right. Um, there's a view that the data, protect, data protection practice that there was before GDPR, the very good practice has been enshrined within law, and of course it now means that every organisation needs to behave in a way where they're putting data protection principles at the heart of the work they do. So in our sector, our fundraising regulator has made changes to what we call our code of fundraising practice, um, and they brought that in line with GDPR, and basically, that says the uh, charities must adhere to the new Data Protection Act. Um, so be before GDPR came in, um, organisations were needing to decide what they were going to do. We, we did that. Um, and some other charities chose to go to entirely consent-led fundraising. So you know, one aspect of GDPR being around how you, um, the legal basis you rely on for direct marketing. Um, and they were frank about the costs, uh, there were costs to them, but I think they're recognising that they're investing um, in the future. So there was a short-term cost to moving every, all channels to, con to, to consent, but they get a return in the future. For us, we chose not to do that. So we rely for, on consent across our uh, um, electronic channels. Um, but for direct mail, we rely on legitimate interests. And we took that decision after um, doing research. So in 2017, we met with supporters, had focus groups, talked through their expectations and got their view of um, what they thought would be reasonable to expect from us as a charity. And that allowed us to develop a view that we could rely on legitimate interest for, for direct mail. Our sector is regulated. Um, we have a um, fundraising regulator and it's a... It's a um, has a key influence on the work that we do. Um, the public has a right to complain to our regulator, and you know our complaints are monitored. 
Um, we report on those. And, um, you know, the, the regulator can impose um, sanctions on us, um, uh, impose changes to ways of working as a result of things that it finds. So it's an important organisation and body for us. And there is a code that we need to adhere to um, as a fundraising, uh, fundraising charity. We have another um, regulatory aspect to our sector, which is the Charity Commission, and that's really looking at the governance of organisations. What has been the effect on UNICEF specifically from GDPR, if any? It's changing our working culture. Um, you know, we have a much more considered approach. I have never been so busy in my working life because I have colleagues coming to me throughout the business seeking advice and um, checking on, on things. And, um, you know, there's an awareness that there is, a, you know, quite developed awareness that, that, that things have changed. Um, we've done a lot to educate colleagues, but there's still questions around, you know, I'm thinking about doing this, is that possible? What challenges might there be with it? What do I need to consider um, if I'm going to use this approach, for example? You know, if we, if, if we consider the um, marketing permissions aspect, um, you know, we work very hard to consider what our supporters would expect. And then we created a dedicated project team of analysts, marketeers, and uh, data specialists who tested and learned through the process of re-seeking consent. And we invested a lot of effort in that. So we were looking at our, um, at our content and timing in terms of what worked. Um, and as a result, we were able to maintain 79% contactability across our supporter data set, which is a, a huge figure. Um, but that came as a, as a result of a, a direct focus on, um, on that part of our work. Of course, GDPR is broader than just uh, consent and marketing permissions, um, and we've needed to raise our game in terms of how we consider our use of data within the organisation. Um, and we've needed to work with colleagues, educating on, for example, what does processing mean? Um, what is marketing? So we have a lot of discussions here about um, you know, what in the content that we're sending out is, is actually direct marketing and, and what isn't. There's some very good guidance from the Information Commissioner around that for our, for our sector. Um, but we've needed to put in place um, you know, measures around making sure that when we're relying on legitimate interests, we've done an assessment that's um, balancing the rights of individuals with our legitimate interests as an organisation, putting in data protection impact assessments, um, and, you know, we're a children's charity and, you know, we want to make sure that when we're processing children's data, which we do, um, that we're doing that appropriately and a data protection impact assessment is a key tool for us to make sure that we're doing that appropriately. We have, uh, you know, formal measures in place, formal groups that meet with uh, quite uh, strong accountabilities um, to make sure we're managing data appropriately. So we have an information governance group. Um, that is there to provide oversight of how we're managing data within the organisation. The accountability for that group goes to our audit committee, which is part of our board of trustees. Um, so it's, it's, it's formally, formally um, overseen within the organisation. And then we have other bodies who are you know, making considered decisions about how we're going to use um, and make use of data. And then there are the softer aspects. So there's the uh, training and awareness um, that we have here. And um, you may have seen when we were looking around the office, we have you know, screens that are asking people to be careful um, with their working practices. Um, and uh, so there's a, there's a blend there um, that feeds into our culture as an organisation. So there are some suggestions that legislators feel 
there's unfinished business around data protection, especially in digital platforms. I'm thinking here of things like age verification, but also regulation of social media. Um, what is the outlook from your point of view, especially as a children's charity? You know, you, you talked about the sort of unfinished business. It's almost what, what, what comes next. Um, so we know um, that, you know, PECA, Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations, is um, well out of date. You know, it, it talks about the use of faxes, for example. And as an indicator of, um, you know, how outdated the current regulation is, it's, that's pretty telling. So we know that's going to be overhauled. Um, and, um, you know, I'm interested in understanding exactly how far uh, the new e-privacy um, is going to go in terms of regulating, um, regulating that space. Um, at the moment, we try and, uh, and uh, you know, embrace the principles of PECA when we're making decisions around things that simply weren't considered when PECA was written. Um, but the new e-privacy guidelines or e-privacy regulation is going to, going to be helpful. Um, you know, we are. There are a number of other um, initiatives underway. The uh, ICO at the moment have, um, well, they've initially uh, had a call for evidence on age-appropriate um, design, and um, they now have a code for pr code of practice. And we fed into both aspects. Um, so we fed in initially into the call for evidence, um, and then we are now feeding back on the. Um, uh, consultation process that that's going through and you know personally I was delighted you know to see very early on it talks about the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child um, and that is you know part of what UNICEF is here to deliver we um, enshrine um, what that uh, convention says um, and tr make sure that it's applied uh, internationally um, the code of practice says that the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child must be adhered to um, and we're del delighted to see that. We are you know, actively working to, with the um, Information Commissioner, or feeding back to the Information Commissioner, uh, to ensure that our perspective is heard within this new framework. The Charter has a, a range of articles, um, or the Convention, I'm sorry, has a range of articles within it. Article 16, a bit like Article 8 of the you know, Human Rights Act, is the right to privacy. Um, and um, you know this is important for all individuals, and um, I think you know we have a developing awareness that um, the extent of information that organisations can aggregate about individuals uh, could well be infringing on people's you know, rights to privacy. Individuals are at the heart of GDPR and other legislation, as you pointed out, and should therefore be at the core of how business thinks, organisations think about data protection. Are we seeing that consumer understanding and active engagement with their rights growing? Um, is there more that we should be doing to encourage that? Yeah, but I think before GDPR, this was a, one of the areas that I thought everyone thought we'd see an explosion of interest in. Um, and I, I just don't think that's happened. Um, uh, you know, you hear statistics like, you know, organisations having... 0.01% of their user base actively managing their consent um, and you know there hasn't been the take up that perhaps you know, we've been expecting but I think there's a good reason for that and I don't think people necessarily assert their rights just because they can they assert their rights um, in the context of need and there needs to be a, almost a use case for this and you can see that with the right to data portability which you know underpins um, pre-GDPR you know, how we do energy 
changing energy providers easily, how we change bank accounts easily. But there's not yet a compelling use case, as far as I know, there may well be something out there, a product out there, that allows you to um, you know, a, 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 um, assert your rights um, for data portability. So there's something about you know, there being a presenting need. I think you have individuals who are interested, they want to find out, there is this developing awareness among the public, um, but there's yet to be a you know a really strong um, reason why. And you know, we may find that um, in the, you know in the future that people, as become more aware, just decide you know what I really want to know. Next, the Alan Turing Institute has a mission to turn mathematics into science, working hand in hand with industry. I met research fellow Adria Gascon at a recent conference on privacy and asked him whether data ethics can be translated into algorithms. So for people who aren't familiar with the Turing Institute, could you just explain a little bit about uh, what it's set up to achieve and how it works? So the Turing Institute is the UK National Institute for Data Science and AI, and it has like uh, several programs running in parallel and covering uh, a lot of aspects of uh, the interaction between data and society, as well as like uh, the technical aspects as well, it runs in different programs and uh, I'm uh, part of a group of people who are research fellows uh, that were like uh, granted fellowships uh, uh, in, in the Turing to develop their own, their own like, research projects. So what I do is mostly about around like data analysis and privacy, but there are other research fellows doing other like fantastic work. My work um, um, it's mostly at the intersection between privacy enhancing technologies and, and data analysis with the ultimate goal of enabling large-scale data analysis uh, in a setting where we can provide uh, strong mathematical guarantees uh, regarding privacy. So as a research fellow, uh, you get to choose an area to focus on and then you have resources at your disposal, other researchers to work with? So this was a competitive call a few years back, so any researcher could apply. Like, uh, I guess there were some requirements, like you need to have a PhD and so on, but it's, like a, it's like essentially like an academic position. And in fact, we are like uh, affiliated with uh, partners of the Turing. I'm affiliated with the University of Warwick, even if I spend most of my time in London. So the, the Turing Institute also has these different interest groups in different uh, topics uh, run by, by different people. So this one is run by me and Emiliano de Cristofaro, who's a professor at UCL. And the uh, main goal of the, of, the, of the interest group is just to like, bring together people interested in like, technical aspects of uh, privacy and data analysis, organize talks, uh, make sure that uh, visitors uh, can like, uh, give like a uh, good quality talks we have the, we put the talks on youtube so there's a web page with uh, a few of them so i'm really i'm really proud of that web page now we have to invite a few more people to keep on populating it but uh, it's been it's been it's been really nice so far we've got uh, there's a, a lot of talent uh, in terms of privacy and hazard technologies in, in in london there's nice work happening at the imperial a very nice group at ucl and then whenever we have i, I have visitors from abroad uh, I, I asked them to give a talk in the context of this interest. So is that perhaps the primary focus to establish those uh, technical principles at an academic level, to see what the constants are almost um, within things like privacy, which can then be taken away and applied into technology or processes? So this is, this is already 
happening and uh, in, a, in a sense already happened with uh, encryption so now encryption is deployed everywhere every time you use your your like browser or you contact google you use some kind of a privacy enhancing technology which uh, is um, a kind of technology that is based on cryptography is based on like a some theoretical concepts and mathematically robust definitions of secrecy in this case. So for privacy, we need, uh, we need something similar. Privacy is a, is a very slippery concept that is very difficult to capture intuitively and uh, even more difficult so because it's something that uh, it's very personal in a sense. Talking about privacy in general is like talking about freedom. So if we want to have uh, systems that uh, guarantee some notion of privacy by design, this uh, definition of privacy need to be, needs to be really accurate. To the same extent that the notion of uh, encryption when you talk to Google or, or buy something using your credit card on Amazon is very robust and, and very solid. It cannot be heuristic or, or like a, a promise. Co companies are getting pressure to deploy systems that are privacy preserving while not having a very clear guidelines of uh, what privacy preserving actually means and whether their notion of privacy is what their users expect, what regulators expect, and what you know, ethics and ethical behavior would, would, would uh, uh, guide. Of course, this doesn't mean that uh, technology can solve all privacy issues because some of the privacy issues are of an ethical nature and, and that needs to be like dealt with in, in, from, from, from like maybe an ethical perspective, right? So, yeah. So just as with cryptography, where there are um, common standards that are applied uh, within the technology that we're familiar with, could we reach a point where there is a there is a set of privacy standards which technology developers will embrace and build into their platforms? I think this, uh, to some extent, uh, is already happening. Uh, for example, the U.S. the United States uh, Census has announced that in 2020, they will be using uh, differential privacy as a framework to guide their decisions in terms of uh, um, how much leakage the, the report uh, it has as, uh, and, and the associated techniques to, to control that leakage. You, I think, are working to help to understand how data sharing can happen ethically within healthcare, which, of course, would benefit all of us. Yes, I, I think that uh, technical means can help uh, ultimately to control trust, somehow redistribute trust and, and decide uh, to what extent you, you want to trust an organization, to what extent you need to do it. And very importantly, technical means also allow us to conclude what's just plainly impossible. Okay, And, and this is very relevant in the context of privacy. They, the lack of uh, rigor can lead to um, mistakes on the one hand, but it, it can also lead to wishful thinking. Mm. Okay, so I, I, I do think that the technical means can help a lot in, in making uh, apparently uh, impossible goals achievable, like for example, computing on encrypted data or, or um, bounding the privacy leakage of a computation. But at the same time, they're very useful also in putting limits of what we can do with private data. Are you an optimist about the future and how we can 
resolve those challenges and keep the balance uh, in the positive space? Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic in the following in the following sense. So the the so just because we are now starting to carefully formalize what it means to be private, it it doesn't it doesn't mean that uh, we live in a worse world. It's the same world, but now we can expose some things that uh, that were already there, right? And this is something that. Uh, applies again to the notion of differential privacy. So differential privacy, it's a, it's a, formula, it's a framework that uh, essentially enables the conversation, okay? And looking at uh, privacy from a technical perspective, although, as I said, won't you know, give you an out-of-the-box solution, it'll open up a well-informed or a clear conversation where you can refer to parameters, technical definitions. And, and to me, this is extremely helpful. Finally, the all-party parliamentary group on data analytics brings together MPs to examine key issues in our industry and help to inform legislators about the latest developments. In May, it published a report, Trust, Transparency and Tech, focused on building ethical data policies for the public good. At the launch, Professor Marina Jirotka of the University of Oxford explained her concept of the data ethics black box, like those used in aeroplanes to record every decision. Uh, please note, this recording is made in a crowded committee room in the Houses of Parliament while both houses were sitting, so it does not have the best sound quality. Now, in contributing, I brought my research in responsible and safe innovation to bear, as well as my role as member of the Programme Advisory Board on the UKRI's digital economy theme. And the remit of that theme is to investigate and realise the transformational impact of digital technologies on aspects of community life, cultural experience, future society and the economy. So it's quite a good fit to this investigation. And it's in this broad context that big data and machine learning must be considered. Data is becoming inescapable and ever-growing part of our daily lives as we work, socialize, and communicate. It's generated by almost every aspect of our existence and is gathered through our devices in workplaces, our homes, our leisure spaces, how we walk, how we sleep, what we buy, and so on and so on. And if used correctly, as we've already heard, it can be an incredibly valuable resource. It can tell us an enormous amount about how to prepare for the future of our society, from drug discovery to logistics, from the health of our citizens, or to what kinds of infrastructures we might build in the future. Together with the power of today's computers and algorithms, data-driven technologies can really enable us to innovate as never before. And the potential benefit for many aspects of our public and private lives are clear. However, like all such innovations, data-driven technologies emerge out of society and they come from the choices that we make. And these choices are not neutral. They're often driven by strongly economic or political concerns. And it's in this context, in the light of a series of contemporary abuses of citizens' privacy and rights, that government, policymakers, civil societies, industry and citizens have come to realize that we really need to attend to both the anticipated and the unanticipated consequences of technological innovation to protect society and our citizens from potential threats and risks. We as researchers, as innovators, as members of society, we need to be paying attention to how this data is gathered, how it's stored, and by whom. We need to understand how these algorithms are making decisions in specific contexts and settings, what inferences are actually being made on the data, 
and what the consequences of those influences might be, what the consequences of bias in the data sets might be, we must also decide in which areas of society those decisions or such decision-making will be automated and to what extent, ranging from fully automated systems to those working in collaboration with humans. And we really need to include and engage with a wide variety of stakeholders, including the public, including the citizens, in order to appreciate a much wider understanding of what the impacts of these issues are. These insights can then be used as a creative resource to innovate more responsibly with openness, with fairness, and with meaningful transparency in order to gain and to maintain public trust in the potential of these technologies. It might be reassuring to you to know that various organisations and institutions across different sectors are already working quite hard on developing ways to enable users to understand better the algorithms that are used and to allow users then to try to evaluate and critique them, and in that way, providing some measure of how much they can actually trust various, um, various systems. Possibly providing underlying reasons for decisions and recommendations made by data-driven technologies, and then to allow users to interrogate recommendations and take part in the decision-making process. So for example, the UKRI Digital Economy Programme is currently funding a series of research projects to enhance understanding of trust, identity, privacy, and security, and to build systems that attend to and, to and promote those concepts. There is a very important balance to strike between the power of technology to, to sort of drive economic benefits and the assurance that these technologies will actually consider issues of well-being and safety. And this is quite an unusual program, but it's very interdisciplinary, and it strives to try to do this. So currently, the, the, in the UK, researchers and developers who are working in the digital economy are actually experiencing a great deal of uncertainty about where responsibilities lie for tackling harmful outcomes of these technological innovations. There are a lot of controversies, as I'm sure you know, about who should, for example, monitor the actions of algorithms or remedy unfairness and bias in machine learning. <clears throat> and those questions and responsibility are often driven by economic considerations. But those issues run much deeper and they're implicated in a wider reshaping of our institutional, cultural, and democratic responses to governing technology. How to divide those responsibilities in the digital economy between developers, civil authorities, users of technology, and automated systems represents a series of as yet unsolved problems. So, to illustrate a bit further, I'm going to give you an example from my own research. I've recently been awarded an EPSRC Established Career Fellowship on the theme of developing responsible robotics for the digital economy. This is a five-year fellowship, and it aims to develop a new approach to responsible innovation in the context of trustworthy and safe systems. The principal challenge is to embed responsible innovation into the technology development practices and to create positive cases of responsible innovation in action. The focus of the research is on social robots, those which interact daily with humans, which is a growing market globally. I'm going to be working together with Anne Winfield, who's Professor of Robot Ethics at the Bristol Robotics Lab, and with various companies and researchers who are developing social robots. Anne and I have been thinking for some time about how it is that people come to trust technology. So, despite the recent challenges, one of the best examples we have for trust in technology is related to aircraft safety. One of the reasons people seem to trust airliners is because they know they're part of a highly regulated industry with a strong safety record. 
The reason commercial aircraft are so safe isn't just about good design, it's also the tough safety certification processes, and when things go wrong, there are robust social processes of air, air, air accident investigation. We suggest that acceptance of air travel, despite its catastrophes, is in part bound up with the aviation governance, which has cultural and symbolic importance, as well as practical outcomes. A crucial aspect of this is the ability to make the tragedy of disaster comprehensible through the process of investigation and reconstruction. Viewing this issue of trust then through the lens of responsible innovation, we suggest that robots and autonomous systems such as autonomous vehicles should be equipped with the equivalent of the aircraft flight data recorder to continuously record sensor and relevant internal status data. We call this the ethical black box after the black box on the aeroplane. We argue that an ethical black box will play a key role in processes of discovering why and how a robot may have caused an accident, and thus is an essential part of establishing accountability and responsibility. We also argue that the transparency afforded by an ethical black box can increase public trust in robots and autonomous systems. And we will stage what we think is actually the first of its kind. We're going to stage mock incident accident investigations to test the ethical black box in different domains, such as autonomous vehicles, social care robots, and robotic toys. And here it's critical to look at the social context in which that ethical black box will eventually be used, not least so that we can have a model of what the social context will need to be. For example, how should an investigation be structured in order to give trusted outcomes? What are the important roles and evidence that will need to be presented? What sort of social dynamics and power relations exist? And how are these mediated through the process of the investigation and through the technologies it both investigates and utilizes in order to help with the investigation? It's in the end when things go wrong that the responsibilities throughout the chain creating, commissioning, and deploying social robots will actually take center stage, albeit retrospectively. And we think that this work is a vehicle for understanding what these chains of responsibility will look like when the harmful incident takes place and provides an unparalleled opportunity to simulate disaster in a safe way to understand how to manage its consequences. For the strongest argument of the ethical black box is meaningful transparency as a fundamental element of responsible innovation. The basic ethical principle that it should always be possible to find out why an autonomous system made a particular decision. Without that transparency, we cannot have accountability or ultimate trust. The transparency is not a given. It has to be designed into systems. And the ethical black box is one way of building transparency into autonomous systems. So to conclude, it's clear that if we're thinking about a roadmap for the way forward, then we need a variety of approaches to address the issues and concerns that arise as these data-driven technologies are now being embedded in our society. And there is, of course, no easy answer to these complex and multi-dimensional challenges. But there are many things we can do to try and ensure that big data algorithms and machine learning will work for society and not in ways that undermine it. <clears throat> some of these are short-term, some are longer-term, and some are still unknown, which will need more investigation. My current research on responsible innovation tries to engage with developers, computer scientists, industrialists, policymakers, academics, the public, and students to anticipate and assess the implications of society of technological innovations, but then to use those insights as a creative resource for designing more responsible systems. 
The work done here on the APPG group on data analytics has taken evidence from a large number of stakeholders and interested parties and heard from a variety of groups, including those in transport, healthcare, policy, and policing, and education. Some of these public policy spaces where the challenges around big data, algorithms, and machine learning are already being felt and fiercely debated. Public debate, public education, and public consultation are all needed to ensure that not only all the views are heard, but that enough attention is actually paid to these critical issues. Could there be a system of sanctions where algorithms that go rogue or are discovered to be flawed have to also be publicly uh, suspended or even retired? I think that one of, one of the things I was trying to say was that we do need to do that work to actually um, find out what the, where the responsibilities lie. And currently, I think under the ethical guidelines, I think with the proliferation of ethical guidelines, many of them actually say that the developers and designers these algorithms are the ones who are whose responsibility it is then if things go wrong. And I think that's a little bit too um, too constrained because the ways in which these things interact, as we, as we know, it can't it's not just often one algorithm, but the way it interacts and learns from other algorithms and other sets of data. So it's actually quite hard to unpack that, that kind of um, where and pinpoint where things have actually gone wrong. I think it would be and that's it for this edition of the Data IQ podcast. If you liked it, please link, like, and share. And until the next time, goodbye.